As I mentioned in the last two weeks, I sketched out for you a biblical theology of material wealth. We surveyed the Bible in an attempt to catch the gist of what God teaches us about material wealth. Today I'd like to draw out a few points of practical application. In our survey, I pictured it last week as something of taking a drink at a fire hydrant. We probably threw out nearly a hundred verses over the stretch of just two weeks, and it uh, was a little bit intimidating to me, certainly, and I'm sure to you at times as well, to try to filter all that the Bible has to say about one theme in just two weeks. But today, I'd like to stop and take just a few sips from a small glass full of verses, and we'll take our time to contemplate what we've considered over the past two weeks. The other analogy that I drew for you is that we were, in a sense, taking a flight over a river of information, crossing it perpendicular, looking down from either side of our airplane as we sought to understand what God's Word teaches about material wealth. We looked through this side at the Old Testament teaching, through this side more at the New Testament teaching, trying to gain a perspective and understanding of what the Bible teaches on this issue. Now, today, if I can press this analogy to the bitter end, we are going to land the airplane, go into a classroom, and talk about what we've seen. Not so much look at the verses of Scripture as just talk together for a little bit about some of the implications. As we surveyed the wide river of information on material wealth, it was obvious that the Bible not only contains many references to material wealth, this theme is an integral aspect of the Bible storyline. I hope that you hear that as I present uh, this sermon to you this morning again. It is an integral part of the Bible storyline. I sought to demonstrate that if you pulled the theme of material wealth out of the Bible, you would be yanking from it a thread of thought that would cause the entire message of Scripture to unravel and to crumble before your eyes. The Bible begins its revelation concerning material wealth in the very first sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And within the first four chapters of Genesis, we find laid out for us three major thematic hooks concerning material wealth on which we can hang essentially all that the Bible's unfolding story tells us about material wealth. It's all there right in the first chapters of Genesis. We'll review that here just for a moment uh, on this uh, chart, as you remember. We established this, first of all, from the Old Testament, as I said, really from the first four chapters of Genesis. We see these three themes. God as creator, man as subduer, and God's people as worshipers. And on these three hooks, we can hang everything that the Bible says about material wealth. Having established and sketched out these three ideas the last two weeks, throwing a lot of verses into each category, I want to close this short series today by talking to you from the heart as your pastor to try to apply some of these ideas that have been laid out for us. Thank you, that should be good there, and we'll go on with that theme further. But as a shepherd, you must give account, I must give account to God for the leadership of this flock. I'd like us to consider some of the practical implications of the truth concerning material wealth that we have seen in the scriptures over the weeks. It's a topic that'd be very nice in my thinking to just leave alone because so many questions arise and so many difficulties come as people filter information and it's a hard topic for us and it's a hard topic for me to talk about but I'm convinced of this. As we look at the scriptures, I'm absolutely convinced we have to get material wealth right. It's not an option for us. We cannot walk faithfully with our God if we do not get this right in our life. And so I present it in those terms. We look, first of all, at God as creator. By way of outline here and practical outline, first of all, we acknowledge, and I say this practically, that God owns everything. We've established that already, but think of it in these terms. He holds title to all of my possessions and reserves the right to either place more wealth into my care or to remove wealth from me. Job chapter 1. If you have not found that already, if you turn there to Job 1, perhaps no other person than Jesus better displayed this attitude than Job. I think Jesus displayed it ultimately as he left the riches of heaven to come to earth. But God poured out wealth upon Job in abundant measure. 
Then in a severe test of faith, God stripped Job of everything. You remember the story. In a matter of minutes, obviously it took more time than that, but in a matter of minutes, Job learned that all of his material wealth was gone. His hands had been chock full of divine riches, of material wealth. And now those same hands hung at his side, absolutely empty. I don't think we can imagine Job's situation. I don't know that it's possible for us. But what would go through your head? What would be the attitude that would prevail in your mind if you went home after this service and you pulled up to your home and everything was in absolute ashes? What thought would first go through your mind? Now that doesn't get anywhere close to what Job went through because of our insurance-padded culture, we would begin probably immediately to be saying, where's the insurance agent? How can I replace all of this? And how quickly can I replace all of this? Obviously, there'd be some things lost forever, some memories and precious things to us that we'd never be able to recover. But what would go through our minds? I don't know that we can even begin to imagine what went through Job's mind. What struck his heart at that moment is he was left with absolutely nothing in a moment of time but it attests to his character to see how he responds. Job chapter 1 and verse 21. This is what goes through his head. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job initiated at that moment a worship service. May the name of God be praised. If I praise Him for giving me wealth, I will praise Him for taking it away because He owns it all. I believe it was John Wesley whose home was burned to the ground one day. He was a man of, of considerable wealth. And someone came and informed him, we're very sorry to tell you, John, that your home is gone and everything is lost. Wesley's response, of course, his heart, I'm sure, was struck and heavy, but his response was this, God's house burned. God's house burned. One less responsibility for me. Now, there's some days I feel that way, <laughs> when that yard doesn't yield and that house is, it has things to be repaired, but that's a tremendous sign of character, isn't it? It's a burning through the fire, and what comes to the surface is what's true and what's real gold in the heart. One less responsibility for me, it was God's house. That's how Job responds here. And I wonder, as we think of this, do you hold the wealth entrusted to your care with similar integrity? If all is lost, I don't think there's any crime that it would be wrong at all to be filled with grief as we thought of some of the things that were precious to us. That's part of it. It's not to ignore and say, oh, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me at all. Of course it would matter to us. It would be a, a, a heavy blow from the hand of God. But could we still, through our sorrow, praise Him? We should possess a heart-level realization that, as Jesus put it, life does not consist in the things which we possess. Luke 12, 15. There is no necessary connection between our well-being and material riches. And I, I say that as an absolute truth. There are many who don't realize that, but it's true for them as well. There is no connection between our well-being and material possessions. There's no connection. There's no bridge that links those two sides. Many think that, the, that those two are linked, but they're not. Not for anyone. God didn't wire us that way. He didn't create us to find our soul's ultimate joy and well-being in things. He created us to find that only in Him. And those who have come to understand that and embrace that know that God is the greater value, that it all belongs to Him. Take it away. I still have Him. I'm still rich. It's all His anyway. If God takes away anything or everything, we can continue to rest in His love. We go back to what was read earlier this morning, Pastor Pratt's reading of Romans 8. That's where we go back. 
He loves us if he takes every last thing away. He loves me with an infinite love. Because it's all his. Do we embrace this principle? Is it an essential ingredient in our worldview? I don't know how to shake my own heart and to shake your hearts enough to say this is not just something we intellectually assent to. It is something that needs to grip the way that we hold all things. They're all God's, all of it. A couple of tests that might help us to discern our own heart. Number one, do you worry about financial disaster looming in the future? I think it's an indicator that this principle, that God owns it all, has not really settled down in your heart. Are you fearful of looming financial disaster? Do financial fears eat at you? One reason may be that you've not really come to terms with this reality that God holds it all. All wealth is a trust from God, and every loss of wealth is simply a retraction of that divine trust. If we really believe this, submission to a loving Father, not anxiety over future financial crisis, will mark our attitudes and concerns. As we look down the road into the dark future, there is out there the grace of God. It awaits us. He will give it to us in measure as we need it. There is not financial trial behind every tree and behind every rock. God may relieve us of everything that we own, but He is the one who's doing that. And this worldview needs to permeate our thinking Submission to a loving Father, to receive what He gives, to let go of what He takes, and to know that whatever the case, He is God and the owner of all wealth. I'd like you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, which is really a remarkable statement of this truth. And you'll notice that we're looking at many passages today. Well, not that many. Uh, we'll just look at a few. I want to scare you after last week's. A marathon, but we're just going to look at a few, but you'll notice they're different verses. We have just sketched the surface of the Bible's teaching about material wealth in these two weeks previous. But we find here a very intriguing reference in the prayer of Hannah, this woman who had been uh, infertile, barren, now with child because of the unique work of God in her life. Notice the words of praise that this new mother uh, or soon-to-be mother, uh, uh, expresses here in this passage. Um, she is a mother at this time. I'm sorry. But 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 6. She says this, The Lord brings death and makes alive. 1 Samuel 2, 6. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Who does this? God does it. He sends poverty and He sends wealth. Now obviously the Scriptures also teach that laziness can bring poverty. And it teach that sinfulness can bring poverty in many other ways, but the ultimate one behind it is God. He gives wealth and He gives poverty. He assigns it. It's all His. So one tool, one test is this. Do we worry about financial disaster? If we do, we really don't see the world in the right terms. Test number two. Do you see every financial decision as a spiritual decision? If you truly realize that everything belongs to God, you will recognize that every purchase and every investment is made with God's money. There's a subtle thought that seems to be alive out there among many Christians that God owns 10% of what I bring in and the rest is mine. He owns 100%. We do not give to God what is His and keep ours. That's not part of giving. He owns it all. Always has, always will. Everything. And so every financial decision then is a management decision. It's a management decision of what we will do with God's money. And this leads us to the next consideration. The second point. God is a creator. He owns all things. 
Secondly, man is subduer. God commissions me to rule over the material world by getting, enjoying, and managing material wealth to His glory. I'd like to pick that phrase apart for a few moments. By getting wealth. Please understand this. All things considered, it is right, it is good, it is God-honoring to invest our energies in the making of money. Earning wealth is not man's idea. It is not an inherently materialistic enterprise. It is God's commission to us. We've belabored this point in the last couple of weeks. Genesis 1, 27 and 28, God sends us into His creation. And He says, bring it under control. That means we have to go out and earn money. And He calls us to that. In our brief survey of the Scriptures, we did not even touch the book of Proverbs on this issue, which has so much to say on the topic. We did glance at a few of the teachings of Paul and find a similar emphasis from the perspective of Proverbs and Pauline theology. Living with moral skill, wisdom, is marked by this. A disciplined, dogged pursuit energetic pursuit of gaining and maintaining material wealth. It is right to get money. Get it. But there's a second phrase there, and that is enjoy it. It's not just about the getting of money, it's also about the enjoying of it. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. We've noted that the last two weeks. If you want to turn there, feel free to do that. I'll just summarize it as it says that God gave us all things to enjoy. We read the Genesis account, and as we read that account, you certainly don't get the idea that God put Adam and Eve in the garden to make their life miserable. He put them in the garden to touch His things and to enjoy His world. And as Paul says to Timothy, He gave us all things to enjoy. Some Christians seem plagued by guilt when it comes to enjoying material wealth. Certainly there's a problem on the other side of it where those that teach that the enjoyment of wealth is about all there is to it. But let's just look at it from this perspective. We should not be plagued by guilt in the enjoyment of material things. If our orientation toward wealth is idolatrous, yes, then we are guilty. But if we truly love God, we should enjoy material wealth as a precious gift from a glorious Creator. But that's not where the equation ends. Get wealth enjoy wealth. Thirdly in that phrase, manage wealth. I think that leads to two ideas. First of all, self-perception. If I truly manage wealth and I need to see myself in a particular way, I am a steward or a manager of God's resources. Flows together with the first point. It's the obvious uh, implication of it. But let's turn to Matthew 25 Another parable of Jesus. Nearly half of his parables are very intricately connected with money. We didn't look at this one last week. Matthew chapter 25, I don't think is intended to primarily teach us about financial stewardship. But by using this parable, Christ implicitly commends the idea of financial stewardship as a fitting illustration of our general accountability to God for whatever He has entrusted into our hands. And so I read it with that in mind. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 14. Sit at the feet of Jesus and hear what He says. Matthew 25, 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey, that is the kingdom of heaven, who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Notice there the emphasis on whose money it is. It's his master's money. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. The master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said. You entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. 
His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now I hasten to say again, I don't think that this parable is all about money. That's not the point. But the illustration follows through and is helpful to us. And the principle is obviously clear, that there is to be not a sitting on the abilities and the money and the time and whatever it is that God has given to us, but there is to be an investment of it in eternal things. And we talk about this in a unique way here in America because as Americans it is important for us to recognize that God has chosen to entrust us with much. When we look at this entire world, he has put much in our hands. And so there is a great accountability. Luke chapter 12 and verse 47, we're reminded of that there. Now this applies again, I think, not only to wealth, but it certainly applies to wealth. Uh, Luke chapter 12 and verse 47. The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready and does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows, Jesus says, by way of illustration, verse 48, but the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Chapter 16 and verse 10 of Luke. Chapter 16 and verse 10. 16.10, whoever can be trusted <coughs> with very little, Luke 16 and verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? It's clear from these passages that God assigns to each of us different possessions and abilities and He intends that we use our possessions wisely, investing them not simply here, but in eternal purposes. And He tells us up front that He will evaluate our efforts. So by way of self-perception, I need to see myself as a steward of God's wealth that will have an accounting as I look at all material things, everything in my possession, I must see myself in that way. But that leads secondly to the idea of initiative. I must devise and follow a disciplined plan so as someday to stand before God as a faithful steward of material wealth. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. I must devise and follow a disciplined plan so as someday to stand before God as a faithful steward of material wealth. We're called to this in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. It's my intention here today to just obey those verses. It's a call from Paul to Timothy. Tell them to do these things. I'm calling you to do these things that God lays out in his word. 
to look to the future, to look to eternity, to realize that your material wealth can be used as an investment in eternal things. By the way, if anybody here says, oh, I'm not part of the wealthy, it's because you're comparing yourselves among yourselves. We are not wealthy in this church. There's nobody wealthy in this church if we compare ourselves with Americans, North Americans possibly, but not over the world. We are extremely wealthy as we compare ourselves as God looks at the globe. And when God looks at the globe, he doesn't center his eyes on North America. A lot of people think that, but he does not. He centers his eyes on the whole world. And in the whole world, we are extremely wealthy people. And so there is an accountability that we need to take seriously. Here's the point. Let's get down to real practical terms. Put simply, we need to manage wealth so that we can give it away and invest it in eternity. Now, there's basically only one way to do that. To give wealth away, there's only one way that I can see it, and my understanding of finances is very simplistic. I took one accounting class in high school and realized I was not going to be an accountant. That was the end of my accounting career. I think I got a B, but uh, it was tough. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a great financial planner. But maybe that's good for us here. Let me put it in very simple terms. You must spend less on yourself than you earn. It's that simple. You must make more wealth than you consume. If you don't do that, you cannot invest in eternity. And whether rich or poor, that will generally not happen unless you adopt a specific financial spending and savings plan that you follow with disciplined patience. We do not like the plan as a culture, do we? We are now-oriented people. Delayed gratification, long-range, patient perspective is not our strong suit in this country. When you can get a hamburger in 30 seconds, why wait for anything? We want everything now, everything big, everything mature. But if we're going to stand before God having proven ourselves faithful stewards of the immense wealth that he has ordained to pass through our fingers as a society. We must purposefully secure money that we can invest, not in earthly pleasures, but in eternal matters. You've got to spend less than you make. And you have to have a plan with what you're going to do with the excess. And happy is that Christian for whom earthly pleasures and eternal matters dovetail into one extended joy. There is a positive tool that will help us secure money and establish goals so that we can know the joy of investing in eternal matters. It's an ugly word, but it's a budget. It's, I don't know how else to say it any more simply. Now please understand, I'm not talking about a general knowledge of your bills and a general perception of where you stand financially. I'm talking about a very specific, ongoing record of every dollar you make and every dollar you spend. Unless you're born, unless you are a born miser and a born giver all in one package, you need a budget. Now, I'll, I'll grant it. There might be one in a million out there that are both those two things. A born miser pinching pennies at every corner and a born giver willing to let go and give to other people. There's some people like that once in a while. But if you're married, the odds just doubled. <laughs> it's even that much harder. There are two of you that are both given my are born misers and more born givers it doesn't happen generally and if that's not true of you then you simply will not use your money effectively if you do not have prioritized and worthy financial goals which you are doggedly pursuing by following a disciplined budget it's my experience that very few adults have such a detailed budget i think most responsible people have a general sense of where they are and they're concerned about it but I don't think too many probably have a budget, so I realize I'm probably getting uh, darts thrown at me by many here. I understand that. One day out of, what have we talked about this topic, maybe twice in nine years. So I'm just taking one quick shot for a few moments to uh, put my plug in on this matter. But I do so, I hope that you understand, because I want you to stand before Jesus Christ and to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And for some of you, I, probably that means that you've got to go home and get a budget. It's that simple. 
Now, it's not all there is to it, but you've got to start there. Very few, I think, really have a genuine budget that they follow and know where every penny went every year. Most seem to live from year to year, maybe even paycheck to paycheck, just pretty happy to pay bills and get along. Let me challenge you that an operative budget can be a liberating tool to show you exactly where the leaks are in your spending and exactly how to create excess income. Do you have one? Do you follow it? Is it a plan that is liberating you to invest in eternal purposes? Now, I know there's a lot of objections at this point. I don't have enough money to even do a budget. I just scrape and scratch and try to make it go. Or A budget's a waste of time for me. Well, I'll grant that maybe, that the income is so low that it doesn't matter. That might be the case from time to time. I had a budget in my head as I was in seminary, but I made almost nothing and spent almost everything on school and trying to just stay alive, and it didn't make a lot of sense to have it all written down on paper. I'll grant that. You may have it in your head, but I would challenge you even still to put it down on paper. A budget can keep you out of debt. It can help you generate excess giving. If nothing else, it's a record of your poverty. And you can lay it out before God in prayer and say, here it is. It's not all theory. I don't have a thing. Others object and say, well, we're not on a fixed income. It's a very legitimate concern. Very easily solved. Uh, it might take you a little longer if you're not on a fixed income to figure this out. But all you've got to do is just track your giving for a period of time, six months. You have to know the months and where things jump and where they go low and all that kind of thing. Just track your giving for a period of time. Find the second lowest month and the second highest month and aim in the middle a little closer to the lowest. Give that as your figure for the month and go on that. You have excess income, you put it in the bank to care for the months that it's lower. You can do it. This is, I think, really, it's, it's harder, no, no question about it, but it can be done. Just pick a figure and stick with it. The figure's too high, adjust it lower. Might take some months, but get it figured out. You can do it. And put an X, uh, well, let me, I think of an objection. Uh, this is a real live person that was breathing and living that um, told us, we tried a budget as a family, but it did not work. We just couldn't stay within our income, so we just quit. It's easier not to think about it. Well, this is a real person that said this and thought this was a legitimate way to deal with it. If you just kind of ignore it, the problem will go away. That's a person that's on a grease slide into financial trial. It doesn't work that way. You can't do that, and I hope that you're not. You're a steward who must give an accounting to God for the wealth that he entrusts to you. Show yourself on paper that you're not making enough to live on. Show yourself that. Prove it, that you really, truly can't live on what you make. But show that on paper. Take it to God in prayer. But don't throw caution to the wind and say it will all work out somehow in the end. That's lazy, and it's irresponsible. That's a positive force to help you to create income that is greater than what you spend. But there's a negative force that will keep you from investing in eternity, and that's an even uglier word, and that's the word debt. This is a really hard topic to address to an assembly, and I do so just very briefly. Again, I haven't touched on this for years on end, but just to pass through once again as stewards of God's wealth to say, I don't know how to address the topic because for some of you, I want to rebuke you. For others, I want to encourage and comfort you. And it's hard to know. Some of you are really working hard to climb out of debt. Some of you have situations that are hard. And I, I want to put an arm around you and comfort you. And there's others who need to be shook and woken up. So I don't know how to address it very faithfully or at least without, without crunching anybody here. But please apply my words accordingly. There's a warning in Proverbs 22 and verse 7. It says that the borrower is a slave to the lender. 
And there's a problem in our culture that is pervasive and I believe is troubling many homes and many people. Our culture goads people into stealing money and then hangs them for it. It does it with a little plastic card. The credit card company holds out the promise that you can have today what's not yours, what God has not given you to afford. We will let you steal it. And then when the time comes to pay and you can't pay it all off, we will slam you behind the bars of an interest rate that will incarcerate you and take from you any financial freedom that you ever had. Now, obviously, there are debts investment type of debts that are certainly legitimate. I think of something such as a business a venture, housing, education, some of these things certainly can be legitimate. We'll get to that in just a moment. I don't think Romans 13.8, for the record, if anybody's concerned about it, that Romans 13.8 is a law against all debts. Oh, no man anything is not Paul saying you should never have a debt. I don't believe that. I don't believe it's faithful to Scripture. God had something he called the year of Jubilee, in which he orchestrated and directed and talked about debts with his people. That's part of living, it's part of business, and there's nothing evil about that. But it is wrong to owe money and not to pay it back. There's a kind of borrowing that takes wealth that it cannot afford, and it gambles on the future that the resultant debt will be that the resultant debt will be paid off with money that's gained somewhere in the future. Well, debt, we need to understand, is an enemy of investment. Debt steals away the freedom to give and to invest in time and in eternity. And so I'd say this to you. If you're not in debt, stay out of it. And children, this applies very much to you. Someday you're going to leave the home and you'll be going to college or you'll be going into a job or something just stay out of debt. Don't get into it. If you have a toe in debt, get free of it. If you're buried in it, create a plan by which you chip away at it. And I say this very specifically and purposefully. Rest patiently in God. In debt, people can be consumed by concern and worry. Rest in Him just evidence in your financial responsibilities that you are getting out of it. If you're sinking further and further into debt, it's spinning out of control, you don't know what to do about it, you need to talk with somebody, and not just a financial planner, somebody that can see things from God's perspective. You have to fix that. You're in chains, and you've got to get free of it. I'd say to all of us, we need to borrow with extreme caution. Remembering that God owns all things and that you're a steward of his resources, then ask prayerfully, is this really necessary? Is God in this? Is this what he desires me to do? Could I wait? Could I come up with money elsewhere? Am I about to pay interest on something that will depreciate in value? That dangerous spot, because you're getting it from two sides. You're paying interest Plus, what you have is depreciating in value. It's costing you two ways. Can you wait on that? I'll remove all doubt that I'm absolutely insane, but I, I just, we just think that's true with cars. Now, I don't have a problem with anybody taking a loan for a car. That's between you and God. That's your money, and it's your call, and it's your interest. But we buy things paying interest that depreciate in value. We're getting hit from two sides. And so many times, the simple reason is we don't like the rust on the side of the car. Now, you can disagree with me there, and I'll love you the same. I know I'm an oddball. But there's something that goes behind all this, and it's not today. It's what God has helped me to see in my own life from the very beginning. I didn't own a car until I was 24 years of age. That's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to live in a room for $100 a month and to ride your bike when you're 23 years old. That's embarrassing. But I wasn't unhappy. I knew God. And I knew he loved me. And I knew he'd care for me. And that's all that matters. So, 
buy a new car, take on debt. That's not my point. My point is just think about it. Are we just getting things we can't afford that God's not given to us because we want them? And please remember as you go to this that financial planning is a guide, not a God. There are some people who are very good with their money and they're worshiping it the whole time. I'd like to say a lot more on that, but let me just conclude and say behind the mask of disciplined fiscal responsibility, often there hides an idolater. We need to look at that last phrase there on that major point, and that is that we're to do all of this to his glory. We are salt and light in a world, and we're to live in a holy manner. Specifically, we are to spread his glory, and particularly in this day, that is through the gospel enterprise, to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, to spread his glory through our material wealth. That starts in our families, it applies to our church, and it applies worldwide. So we need to manage money to experience this joy. We need to hasten on. I appreciate your patience again. If you give me just a few more moments, let me hit that last point just briefly, and that's God's people as worshipers. God calls me to love him with all my heart and to guard against the idolatrous love of money. I must not idolize wealth. 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The love of money is seen in many ways. One of the ways it is seen in our culture is, by, is through image. Poor financial decisions are made because we're embarrassed by what we can't afford. Do you put clothes, do you put on clothes that you can't afford? Do you put them on a credit card because you want to dress like those around you? Do you refuse to drive something that's below what others in your neighborhood or at work have? Do you refuse to live in a way that is frugal because you just don't want to look bad? You're in dangerous dangerous place there. I'm not talking about danger because of financial issues here as much as I am about your heart relationship with the Lord. You're looking at money as a source of your joy. Luxury is another thing. What a high standard of living we enjoy. And let's say, let's be honest with it too, our culture presses that on us. There are times I would really have preferred to live in my own little shack on the side of the road compared to what I was renting. That we couldn't do that. You have to live in a certain kind of place in this world. You have to drive a certain kind of vehicle. But going past that, there, is luxury. there are luxuries that we can seek after because we really just love money. We've got to be careful. Are we willing to do without so that our financial priorities are in line? Contentment could go on for a long time here. Let me just summarize it, Philippians 4, 11 through 13, without even turning there to just say this. Are you content with what you have now? Every Christian is content with what they're hoping to have soon. Are you content with what you have right now? The lie is just a little more. Just a little more never ends. Just a little, little more never goes away. You're never happy with it. You're never content with it. There's another lie that kind of goes with that, and is we just had as much as these people had. I heard somebody refer recently to the golden ghetto, the, the, high, uh, the high salaries that just are sucked up into nicer things. It never ends. One professional basketball player standing to make 18 million in one year said there's just no way we can live with these limitations as he talked about the owners. Now, we laugh at that and we ought to. But you know, if you walk into that world, you would all of a sudden understand what he meant. When you've got to live up next to the next guy with the $10 million home, that costs a lot of money to take care of that thing. And you've got to pay a lot of people to take care of that. 
And you've got to have at least four or five cars, one for every occasion, to show off to everybody. And that takes a lot of money to pay the insurance on those things. The point is, if, it, if what you have today, right now, is not satisfying, nothing will be. Because what needs to change is not your bottom line financial standing. What needs to change is your heart. We need to be happy with nothing as Paul was, or happy with everything, a lot. We must not idolize wealth, but we must sacrifice it. And I say this, orient your life toward first fruit tithing. How's that for bold? But that's what it needs to be. And I'd be wrong to say anything else. Orient your life toward first fruits tithing, giving the best to God, thinking first of Him, and using a 10% as an earmark as a benchmark, to build off of that, to use that as a goal, to use that as kind of a test, and to go beyond it. I have heard two statistics from two major evangelical leaders within the last six months. One said 2%, the other said 2.5%. That's the number of evangelical Christians in North America that give 10% of their gross income. 2% or 2.5%. That means 98 out of 100 don't make it. Well, we've noted the New Testament does not command a tithe. But as I mentioned to you, I have a very hard time believing that God would demand a tithe of his people in the Old Testament only to expect less as they come on the other side of the cross. And that it would be his intention that 98 out of 100 evangelical Christians would not give 10% of their gross income. I have a really hard time believing that of God. Rather, I think we need to realize that our giving is insulation against the love of money. And I hope that it never becomes in this church an issue of the bottom line for the church. I hope it never becomes, as is true in some churches in our area, and I know them and I know people in them, that you give your tithe and God has to give you wealth. You're going to be rich and secure because you're giving 10% as if that's some kind of law. He can take it all away tomorrow if he chooses, and he's righteous in doing so. You don't get anything from God that way. He's not a cosmic bellhop. You put in the money and he has to shower down. He's like kind of going to the casino. I drop in my 10%, I pull the lever and down it comes. That's not God. He doesn't owe us anything. But I do think that we need to think hard about this and be oriented toward first fruits tithing. It's an act of faith because giving will always be an act of faith. And giving will always take away opportunities to achieve other financial goals. He knew that. It's part of the process. It's part of keeping us pure. It's part of drawing our hope to Him. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, as He's prospered us, we give on a routine basis. You need to know that. 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, 1 Corinthians 16, or 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, 1 Corinthians 16 lays it out. We don't have time. I would also encourage parents to teach your children to orient their life toward first fruits giving. If you're not teaching them at a young age how to lay aside a tithe for worship, what are you preparing them for? Where are you leading them? What is going to happen in the church of Jesus Christ? Now, a lot of objections here again, just a moment or two longer. I cannot tithe. I've got too much debt, too many other financial responsibilities, some say. Maybe you do. And maybe that's honorable not to tithe. That's between you and God. I can't determine that for you at all. But I would say get out of debt so you can give. Orient your life to get out of debt so that you can turn it around and begin to give excess income to God's work. And I say that with this caution. I really have my doubts that anyone cannot tithe. Let's be real honest. It's a matter of faith. It's always been. And the real issue is that we are very used to enjoying certain luxuries like eating out at restaurants and driving two nice cars and going on vacations and improving 
our houses and furnishings and wardrobes and buying conveniences. We're so used to that that we say, I can't afford to give. First fruits just takes care of that. You take care of what you're supposed to give to God first, and then you live on what's left. And you don't have to think that way. You don't have to worry about that. You just live on what's really there, and it's very freeing. The bottom line is that we find more joy in spending wealth on temporal pleasures than we do in investing wealth on eternal issues. And we must guard our heart to worship God alone there. So I challenge you, step out in faith if you need to. Secure wealth to invest in God's cause. That's why he gave it to you. And it's all his. As one great saint put it, get as much as you can, save as much as you can, and give as much as you can. If you know God, that equation works. I hope that we would become, move, move away from being mere consumers to investors in eternal reward. I long for that in my life. I long for that in your life. It's absolutely critical that we get this right. Maybe you're stuck this morning. There can be help and there can be ways out of it. It's going to take discipline and work and faith. But don't give up. Don't turn from a message like this and just say, it's not for me. Hear the echo of the words, well done, good and faithful servant, and do what you can do step by step to get there. How I thank God that this grace of giving, that this orientation to life is so present in our assembly, among many. And among some, I think, who are in our assembly choosing not to be wealthy in order that they might give. I thank God for being part of such a work with such people. There's some of you that I'm saying there's a joy you're not realizing that I wish you would realize. I hope that you will realize. By God's grace, you will, and you will never, ever be sorry for it. I never have for a moment, ever, begrudged God of what I've given him. I've never been sorry for being faithful to look at my money as his, all of it. That's part of how we love God with all our heart. And we're called to that, so I encourage you to it. Let's bow for prayer.